0: By your grace, help us to see you as you really are and to honor and obey you as you deserve. Help us to delight in you and all you have done for us and to submit our own desires to you. Father, make us as a church that kind of church that it's normal for us to call each other to trust you and serve you because as a preacher right now, you are our there are tremendous needs in this room today, Lord. May your kingdom come and your will be done in each and every one of them. We think also of needs beyond our church family. Thank you for the great work that's happening in Scotland with our partner 20 scenes. Bless their efforts to plant more churches. We pray for the Community community churches they gather right now in the evening there to study the Bible and encourage each other. We ask you to give them increased unity in the truth. Father, well, we use mad and Sharon and Poshit and others we've met to bring the poorest Scotland people to the treasure of the gospel. Closer to home, God, we ask that you would hear what we would say today. What Tad would says to us from the scriptures and encourages us to obey you. We think also of what's happening around our country with the call right now for racial justice. Father, the color of one skin ought not determine what kind of education you can have or how the police treat you. Father, so we pray that you raise up gospel preaching churches in cities like Baltimore. May their worship services today be their finest day. We pray that Christ in them would show the city that there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, black or white, but we're all one in Christ Jesus pray that you churches across this country to demonstrate supernatural love and racial (coughs) harmony. And now, Father, as we open the Bible, we confess our tremendous need for you. We are people inundated every day with noise. Would you help us now to be quiet? Would you help us now to hear what you would say to us? To hear truth that we can count on? Give us soft hearts so that we can hear Ourselves in this room and respond with faith and obedience. We pray all of this in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning. Glad to be here this morning with you. And if you're new here, then we are just getting started on our new sermon series. And this stand is not going to work for me. But hold on, I'll get one in a second, so don't worry about it. So specifically we're in the the portion of the Gospel of John that's called the Upper Room Discourse. And we're looking at really just the last few hours of Jesus' life as right before he prepares to die on the cross and then be resurrected. So if you knew that you were about to die, how would you spend your last days? You ever thought about that? It's, it's really an interesting question, interesting thing to think about. So I want you to talk for just a moment amongst yourselves about what's on your bucket list. So turn to your neighbor, talk about what's on your bucket list, and then I'm going to ask for some responses in just a moment. All right, let's, let's come back and let me hear just two or three. Who's got two or three really good ones? What's, what's a good one? Wrestling a bear. What, what's that? Wrestling a bear. Wrestling a bear. Was that yours? Why, why is that? I don't know. Are you okay with that, Allison? No? Okay. okay. What else? Who else? We shouldn't have started with, you know, the the highest one. Nobody can top that. Anybody else? Graduation. Graduation? Who said that? Alyssa? All right. You're almost there. Almost, right? What else? Anybody else? You want your sister to know Jesus. You got to go all spiritual on us here. what came to my head. That's that's awesome. That's great. You don't have to be sorry about that. That's great. One more, one more. Deep water, scuba diving. Yeah. What's that? Scuba diving in deep, deep, deep water. Not just <laughs> deep water. Deep, 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 water. deep water. Scuba diving in deep, deep, deep water. All right. Deep, deep. <laughs> Three deeps. Three deeps of water. So I don't think I'd ever thought of a, a bucket list before myself. I, I'm much too young for that, right? <laughs> so. As I was praying this sermon, I did give it some thought, and my conclusion is, is that I'm, I'm just a selfish punk, I think. My, my bucket list is I'd really like to have a, a nice sports car, and I'd like to drive that sports car around the U.S. and go on some beautiful hikes. I'd even like to go around the world, see some things that I've never seen before. So is there anything wrong with that? It depends on my heart, doesn't it, as to whether there's something wrong with that or not. So hold on to that thought. We're going to talk about that at the the very end today, about your heart and what's in your heart. So what about Jesus? What about his bucket list? Have you ever given any thought to what was on his bucket list before? Well, it's a very revealing thing that Jesus spent his last days with his friends. He wasn't in sorrowful grief. He wasn't in agony. He wasn't serving himself. He wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't thinking about how to make a monument to himself in his last moments. Instead, he spent his last days comforting the disciples. He spent his last days teaching and preparing them for his death. That was on his bucket list. So we're in John chapter 13. So grab a Bible around you. There's, if you don't have one or don't have one on your phone, uh, look underneath one of the chairs in front of you, you'll find a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, take that one home with you. We're in John chapter 13. It's on page 621 of the Bible that is provided for you. And I'm going to read uh, a portion of that, which will be on the screen behind me in a moment. But I want you to uh, have the Bible in front of you this whole time, because I'm not going to have all of the verses after I read this uh, on the screen. So I want you to have it in front of you, check it out, make sure that what I'm saying matches up with what, what uh, what's in your scripture. So, We've just seen Jesus wash his disciples' feet, and he's literally and symbolically washed them and cleansed them. And now we see what happens next. John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 16. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. By the way, that's another reference to Jesus claiming to be God. It's hearkening back to the burning bush when God claimed that I am, told Moses who he was. Jesus continues, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word instructs us, it encourages us, it convicts us, it shows us ultimately our need for a Savior. God, I pray that as we talk about this passage, as we delve into some things, that we would leave today as changed people, that we would leave um, desiring to know your word more, desiring to make it more a part of our lives, desiring to make Jesus ultimately our life. God, we give this time to you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Judas, the betrayer, is revealed here. I just love this section of John. This is the nitty-gritty, it's almost the the Hollywood-like portion of the book of John. And this is, uh, I say that knowing that Hollywood is not all that kind to Christians, but you can almost see that this real-life event was, was made for the movies. You can almost see it playing out if you picture it, if you think about it. All of the disciples were gathered together. So picture that. All the disciples gathered together. Picture the intimacy of Jesus, being in the same room with Jesus, the teaching that's going on. They're gathered for an evening meal. The master has just done the truly dirty work of washing the disciples' feet. So all of Jesus' life has has been building to this point. All of the disciples' time with Jesus has has been building up to this very moment. So in the next few days, the disciples are about to be tested. And they're about to experience the wildest of emotion swings. Again, picture this. Think about what they're going through, about what they're about to go through. In the next few days, when Jesus is betrayed, when he's tried, and when he's killed, they'll be shocked. They'll be devastated. They'll be terrified. They'll be lost. They'll be heartbroken. And then when Jesus rises from the dead, they'll be shocked again. They'll be doubtful. But then they'll be elated. They'll be overwhelmed with joy. Followed by... Jesus uh, leaving for glory, and they'll be sad about that when they see him leaving, and then they'll be overwhelmed with anticipation and excitement as the Holy Spirit descends to do his work. So wild emotion swings from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs that the disciples are going through. So this is the very start of that. Picture all of that here. Picture the meal. Picture that intimate teaching, that intimate time with Jesus. And then, of course, there's Judas he's not the focus of very many sermons you don't hear judas talked about all that often or not not the the focal point he's a shameful devious character he's the villain of this passage now much has been written about the motives of judas maybe you've heard uh, different theories and different thoughts on that but it, it to me it doesn't really seem all that hard to understand scripture reveals him to be greedy he's consumed by money you remember the story of Mary who was going to who brought who bought the expensive perfume was going to wash Jesus' feet with her hair and Judas was angry about that because he wanted that expensive perfume to be sold and to be put into the money box. And why did he want that? Well, scripture says that he was in charge of the money box and he was a thief. He would steal from the money box. And then of course he betrayed Jesus for money. So it doesn't seem that difficult to understand that Jesus or that Judas was motivated by greed, that he was a greedy individual, he was consumed by money. So Judas, the most despicable traitor in history. Would you agree? Yes. Like Adolf, you don't see very many Judases running around. Nobody names their kid Judas. Nobody names their kid Adolf. Right. So. Here we have Judas and Jesus. We have this this jarring juxtaposition. We've got Jesus, who is the Holy Lamb of God. He's perfectly righteous. He's loving. He's kind. He's selfless. He's sacrificing all. And then on the other hand, we've got Judas. He's rotten to the core. He's unrighteous. He's unloving. He's the betrayer, motivated by greed. It's really shocking when you compare these two individuals side by side. But Judas is not the star of the show. He's not the star of this movie. He's not the star of anything. Jesus is, he's always been. Jesus is the star of your life. No matter how hard you, you try to make him otherwise, he is the star. This sermon series is titled Christ, Our Life. It's not titled Judas, Our Life, or Tad, My Life, or insert your own name here, My Life. It's Christ, our life. Your life and my life is really about Jesus. So today, as we focus on Jesus, I want us to see three things. I want to see, first, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Secondly, I want us to see that Jesus can identify with the betrayed. And then third, I want to see that we betray Jesus, too. So first, God is sovereign. God is in control. Now, there's three implications that I want us to get from this passage about the truth that God is sovereign. Three things that we can apply as we see that God is in control. So first, let's see the the example of Christ. Let me set this up for us. Jesus knows that he's about to die. He's fully aware of that. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. He's completely aware of what's going to happen. We see in verse 2 and verse 11 of this chapter, if you look at that, you'll see that Jesus knew the devil was at work in Judas. He's mentioned in chapter 6 that one of the disciples was the devil. Jesus has spoken several times before this about his coming death. He knew that he was going to die. So Jesus is not caught off guard by this. As fully God and as fully man, he's completely and he's totally at the will of the Father and being led by the Holy Spirit. So nothing happened to Jesus that God did not ordain and cause to come to pass. God is sovereign over all. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So how is Scripture fulfilled? What's he talking about there? What does that mean? Well, here's where we can follow the example of Jesus. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed, but he wasn't in a panic about it. He knew that he was going to be deceived or so-called deceived by one of, one of his closest friends, but he wasn't suffering anxiety attacks in anticipation of it. And why is that? Why was he not in a panic about this? It's because scripture is big in Jesus' life. And because of that, the trials of life are smaller as a result. Because scripture's big, the trials of life are smaller. So let me make this more clear. As we trust in a sovereign God, we learn that the God of Scripture is more important, the God of Scripture is more important than any trial that you ever go through. So how was Scripture fulfilled? Look at verse 18 again. That's really a partial quote from Psalm 41.9. And Jesus said that this Psalm of David, Psalm 41.9, is really prophecy about him. Isn't that amazing to think about in its entirety? Psalm 41.9 reads, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. God is sovereign. God spoke about Jesus' betrayal in Scripture through David a thousand years before Jesus was born. Isn't that amazing to think about? God is sovereign. We see the measure of that betrayal in Psalm 55 as well. And Jesus didn't refer to this in this passage but we can see that this Psalm 55 is really prophecy about Jesus and Judas as well. It reads, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You can see that in Judas, can't you? So yes, G- Judas was a close companion of Jesus. And you don't get much closer as friends than to spend three years, like Judas did, living day in and day out, night in and night out, with somebody. You get to know them, you become intimate, close friends. Yet when, Jesus, when Judas betrayed Jesus, it didn't catch God off guard. Jesus didn't go into a panic. He didn't throw in the towel or give up when this happened. The betrayal didn't create an obstacle to God's plan because it was God's plan. Being betrayed by Judas was on Jesus' bucket list. That was why he came. From the very beginning, God is in control. He doesn't cause evil, but he used Judas's evil act as part of his plan. So the second implication about God's sovereignty is this. The fact that God is sovereign, the fact that God is sovereign was vital to the disciples' faith, and it's vital to ours as well. So imagine, again, being one of the 11 faithful disciples. Imagine being one of the 11. To have your leader killed, to have your leader appear to be blindsided, that would be devastating. And then on top of that, to know that one of your best friends, one of the people that you'd spent the last three years of your life with, was was the one who had deceived, the one who had betrayed, the one who'd done that to your master. So the disciples needed to know that Jesus was completely aware of what was happening, that he wasn't caught off guard. Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. I haven't made a mistake by choosing Judas. I'm not a victim of this skilled deceiver. I knew every single detail of this and it was that the scripture would be fulfilled. So it's it's important the disciples would know that. It's important that we would know that as well so that our view of God's sovereignty wouldn't be undermined. So why is it important for us to know that God is sovereign? Why is that a big deal? Why do we need to know that God is sovereign? Well, when bad things happen to us, how do we feel? We feel bad, exactly. We feel sad. We feel angry. We feel frustrated. We often begin questioning God. We say, God, why did you let this happen to me? How could you let this? happened to me. This is not fair, not right. And as difficult as it is to see our our Savior betrayed by a close friend, it's actually an encouraging thing, this passage is. So let me explain that. This has always been God's plan. It's not as though God created Adam, that Adam sinned, and then God was was caught flat-footed. He was surprised and he was thinking about what he was going to do next. Before Genesis 1-1, before God created anything, God ordained that a member of the Trinity would leave the comfort of glory, would become a baby, would be rejected and betrayed by those whom he loved, would experience the suffering on the cross, would experience the separation from the Father, would have all the saints' sins placed upon himself, and then would die. So think about that, that's always been God's plan. And why, why was that God's plan? Well, it's because God is the star of this show, this movie, this life. God was most glorified by pursuing us, by loving us sacrificially and redeeming us. God was most glorified by pursuing us, by loving us, by redeeming us. Christ is our life. So what about us? What about you? What about me? Again, why is it important that we know that God is sovereign? Well, when bad things happen in our lives, what should our response be? Well, that's really tough when bad things happen. We don't like it when bad things happen. But if you're a believer in Christ, if you're his child, then whatever circumstances you're going through are meant for God's glory, and they're meant ultimately for your good. Now, how can I say that? How do I know that? It's because God's word says that. He tells us. We see in Scripture that the bad things that happened to Jesus were actually for our good. We see in this, this famous bumper sticker kind of verse, Romans eight twenty eight, says, And we know that for those who love God, all things... Now, that includes good things, and that includes bad things, and that includes neutral things. All things. We know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And the verses that follow that lead us right back to the sovereignty of God, that He is in control. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So God knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what is ultimately good that needs to be worked together in your life. Just as he did with Jesus, he sovereignly plans out what you need with the ultimate purpose of becoming more like Christ. And that can be painful. That's painful sometimes. It's not out of the ordinary for for the Christian. It's not out of the ordinary for God to use pain and suffering to make us more like him, to make us more like Christ, to make us rely on him we just saying about needing God. We need Him in times like that. So taking off the old, removing our sin nature and all the things that go with it, and putting on the new, being conformed to the image of, of Christ, is not as painless as just changing clothes. Even that imagery, being conformed to the image, that, that just sounds painful, doesn't it? Being conformed to the image of God. But it's necessary for growth. Or a good God wouldn't ask us to do that. So for anyone troubled by that, that's, this is a, a big, heavy thing, right? So anybody that's troubled by that, then let's talk about that. would love to sit down and talk with you about any of that that we just shared. But we've got to move on. So track with me here. Leave that behind for just a second. And let's move on to the next, the third and final implication, that God is sovereign is this, our commissioning as Christians remains even when others walk away from the faith. So remember that Jesus is saying, I chose you to be my disciples. He's saying, I know you. And then look at verse 20 again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So see this important aspect of God's sovereignty here as well. Jesus has already commissioned his friends, his disciples earlier in John. He did that already and now it almost seems like he's recommissioning them. So remember the context of this passage. Jesus has literally and symbolically cleansed the disciples by washing their feet. And he's about to figuratively and literally cleanse the disciples by removing the betrayer from their midst. So the mission of the 11 The faithful 11 is not tainted by the failure of the one. Some of you have spouses who are not yet believers. Or family who are not yet believers. Or friends who have walked away from the faith. We need to remember this whenever we see so-called Christians who leave the faith. But just because there are those who walk away or those who have not yet accepted Christ does not mean that you're mission is interfered with or you're deterred from it doesn't negate your commissioning as a believer to share the good news and to glorify god so the fact that god is sovereign was a comfort to the faithful 11 after they watched their friends betray their lord and as they watched their savior die and we can be comforted by that same sovereign god so god is sovereign we see that in this passage jesus was not caught off guard and secondly, we see also that Jesus can identify with the betrayed. And unfortunately, many, if not most of us here, can identify with being betrayed as well. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus has just reaffirmed the disciples' commissioning. And then he turns his focus on Judas. And how, how is Jesus at this point emotionally? What does it say? He's troubled in spirit, right? So how can that be? Didn't we just talk about how... He wasn't caught off guard. This didn't catch him by surprise, and yet now he's troubled in spirit. Why is that? Well, it's because his attention was turned to the betrayer, and his thoughts were then centered on the betrayer. His thoughts then, of course, inevitably moved to the coming separation from God. So perhaps a good way to think of it is like this. He's troubled in spirit because he's in the presence of the betrayer. And have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been at a family gathering or um, in a work setting or hopefully not but even in a church setting where there's just one person that pollutes the whole atmosphere. You're around them maybe you're thinking about something they said that was unkind maybe you're thinking about some conversation you've got to have with them maybe you're thinking that you've, you've spent a lot of time investing in them and they've betrayed you or they've gone their separate way that's how jesus felt at that moment your heart sinks let me give you one more example have have you been to sky harbor airport recently anybody most of us a lot of us and when you get your bags and you walk out what do you experience right outside the doors you experience this this wave of cigarette smoke right so there's supposed to be a 10 or 20 foot barrier I, i don't know what the law is but that doesn't happen, right? So you're just trying to get out of that smoke to a place with some fresh air, at least as much fresh air as you can experience at the airport. <laughs> That's how Jesus felt here. And we'll see in verse 1 of chapter 14 in a couple weeks uh, that Jesus, soon after Judas leaves, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. But here, Jesus is reminded of the betrayals, reminded of the trial. He's reminded of the suffering that he has to face. He's troubled in spirit by this man that he's poured his life into and is betraying him for money. Now that's troubling, but but listen to this. It's, It's really good to see Jesus' humanity in this situation. This is another way that we can see that Jesus is flesh. He is man. Wouldn't you be troubled in that situation to be thinking about that and see that? It's another example of Jesus being God in the flesh. Let's see further the depth of betrayal. We already pointed out that Jesus and Judas were close friends. They spent a lot of time together. We said that Jesus knew Judas would betray him. So can you fathom the love that Jesus has for Judas? Pastor Chuck spoke last week about the foot washing, and he actually mentioned this. Can you imagine knowingly washing the feet of the one who is going to betray you? That's scandalous. That's scandalous. That's shocking love, isn't it? Then Think about the meal as well. How many of you have seen da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper? If you haven't, here it is. There it is right there. So it didn't really appear like this. They didn't sit on one side of the table so that they could take, you know, set up a tripod and take a group photo. <laughs> this is not the way it actually happened. The, the way it actually happened is that the uh, Disciples the custom at the time was to eat reclining you would eat while laying down or, or leaning resting on your side at a low table With pillows all around the table. So in that kind of a situation you really only were able to have a conversation With someone who was on your immediate left or on your immediate right and so what was the position of the disciples in this passage Well a close reading if you read it closely, you'll see that Judas was on one side of Jesus and the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was John, don't you just love how he referred to himself that way? The disciple whom Jesus loved? Um, we should all refer to ourselves. We're the, we're the person that Jesus loves, right? John was was seated on the other side of Judas. So Jesus was the host. And so what amazing love that Jesus put Judas at a place of great honor at this table. And then even more than that, a host giving a morsel of bread to a guest is a sign of friendship. It's as though Jesus is giving Judas one last chance. He's saying, I'll humble myself. I'll wash your feet. I'll seat you at this place of great honor at the table. I'll even give you this bread as a sign of friendship. So no doubt, Jesus knows betrayal. And he can identify with the betrayed. And yet see how he treated the one who betrayed him. It gives real tangible meaning to the biblical commandment to love your enemies, doesn't it? That's so convicting to me as well. All too often we turn away from God. We turn away from God's scripture. We turn away from God's people when, something, when someone betrays us, when someone treats us poorly. But here we need to follow the example of Christ. We need to turn to God. We need to turn and rely on scripture. We need to turn to God's people in times like that. So those of us who have been betrayed or hurt by others, won't you turn to the one who can identify with the betrayed? Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows what you've been through. And one final thing. When when Judas came with with the soldiers to arrest Jesus, how did Jesus greet Judas? Does anybody remember that? He said, how did Jesus greet Judas? He called him friend. Can you imagine that? Friend, amazing love that God has for sinners, an amazing love that God has for us as sinners. And that's all part of God's plan. So we've seen that God is sovereign. We've seen that Jesus can identify with the betrayed. Now let's see how we betray him as well. So you'll likely have one of a couple of reactions to that. You'll you'll either say, that's not true. I've never betrayed Jesus the way that Judas did. Or you'll say, that uh, that's too ugly for me to think about. Maybe that was true before I became a believer, but that's not true of me today. That does not describe me at this moment. So let's look at each of these briefly. First, you may respond to the statement by saying, that's not true, I've never betrayed Jesus like Judas did. But you see that you have, and we all have. Scripture is clear that we're all rebellious, we're all rebels to a holy, sinless God. Let's look at that in just one place. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about the state of all people before they became believers in Christ. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we're all sinners before a holy, sinless God. And what's the consequences of being a sinner before a holy God? Well, one thing that the Apostle John is known for is the concept of light and dark. He's used that in this gospel. He used it even more so in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Uh, We looked at 1 John last fall. Look at verse 30 again. John says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, talking about Judas, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, that's not just a throwaway line by John. That's a reference both to the time of day and to where Judas was headed. So where's Judas now? Well, he's an eternal night. He will never see the light again. And so what about you? If you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, then you've committed the ultimate betrayal, of him you're headed towards night forever and once you accept that jesus is god who came lived a sinless life died on a cross so that he could glorify his father and because he loves us once you put your trust in him and have eternal life with him now second response to the statement that that jesus um, that we betray Jesus as well is that you can say it's too ugly for me to think about or that's not true of me today, not true of me now. But do we not betray Jesus on a regular basis as well? Every time that I think or act in a way contrary to glorifying God, then I'm betraying Jesus too, even as a believer. And we all betray Jesus with our sin. You may not, you may say, you may argue with that, you may say, "I'm, I'm not a cheater. I don't cheat on my tests, I don't cheat on my taxes, I don't cheat on my wife, I might say I'm sexually pure, I don't have sex with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, I'm not a thief, I do all the right things. But think about your bucket list responses earlier. Maybe not the ones that you shared, but your secret ones, your true ones. What do they reveal about your heart? What do they show that you're putting your trust in? What do they show that you're you're getting your security from? What do they show that you're, you're worshiping? What do they show that you're living your life in anticipation of? If I can just get to this, then I'll be happy. If I can just get to that, then everything will be good in my life. Do any of those things really have anything to do with glorifying God? Or are they just meant to satisfy your own desires? Are you Lord of your life, or is Christ your life? That's so convicting to me, personally. So in closing, I want you to think about our sin. Think about your sin. Think about it in relation to Judas. Who do you identify most with in the story? Is it Jesus, who was blindsided by betrayal? Is Is it the faithful apostles, who were also blindsided and would soon face uncertainty? And loss? Or is it Judas, who is motivated by his own will, seeking after himself, seeking after something to fill his life with, seeking after money? To me, all too often, is Judas. So let me suggest a third response to this statement, that we betray Jesus. Our response should be yes. Yes, I'm a sinner with no hope. But praise be to God that he saved me, and my reaction in must always be, yes, Lord, I will follow you. I will put my trust in you. I no longer want to be a rebel. Help me to love you more. Help me to trust you. Christ, you are my life. In the, in the book of Job, there's this beautiful passage of Scripture where God, it shows us God's sovereignty. God is, is talking to creation, and he says to the to the waters. He says, you stop right here. And then he says to the mountains, this high and no higher. And then he says to the snow, he says, fall here. And all of these things obey him. God is sovereign over all of creation. And then what about us? When he looks at man, when he looks at you, when he looks at me and he says, do this or do that, what do we say to him? All too often, we say, no, I'm going to do things my own way. It shouldn't be that way. We betray Jesus every day with our thoughts and our actions. And oh, that we would see that and be moved to repent. That we would see that and be moved to make Christ our life. And finally, isn't it a comfort to know, as we read this passage, that nothing that's sinful, there's not anything that sinful man can ever do that will ever remove or undermine the plans of God. What appeared to be the tragedy of betrayal of our Lord, what appeared to be the tragedy of the cross was actually the triumph of redemption. We see the amazing, loving mercy of God towards sinners. In Jesus' response to the the traitor Judas, it's scandalously shocking, amazing love that God had for the traitor and for us as sinners who betray Him as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your amazing love. We so don't deserve what You have done for us, what You've given us as Your children. God, we have an inheritance now as believers. We have access to You, our Father. We can rely on You We can go to you in prayer. We know that you hear us. We have eternal life with you. All because of your son, Jesus. God, thank you that you are in control, even in moments when it seems like our life is upside down, even in moments where we're blindsided by something. We know that you are in ultimate control. So, God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen.